Hi. So this is a special episode of Dumpy Little Unicorn. Today I'm joined by two of my friends and fellow bloggers, Caroline and Matt. Hi, Caroline. So tell us where we can find you on the internet. Hello, Jane. Uh, you can find me if you Google uh, Astounding Yarns. Uh, so I have a, a book blog that also has a lot of knitting and craft on it and the occasional cat pictures, bits of cosplay, that kind of thing. Cool. And Matt, how about you? Uh, I can be found on woolalongtheshelves.net um, and I also am on Twitter as woolalongwomble. And I just occasionally talk about books every now and then. Just now and again. Just now and then. And not tempting at all, ever. Tempting just pops up every now, every hour Never or happens. so. And on Sundays, you can probably, hardly ever. <laughs> Everyone says, it's nice to see me. And then suddenly they find books have mysteriously arrived in and their And sometimes backs. you don't even have to be there. <laughs> I spend time true. in your company and, and I find myself game. buying books the following day. It is. I play a long game. I play a good long game. And and also remotely as well. Oh, you just need to read this. And it's like, okay, and then and then yes, your Kindle is full and you have those problems. <laughs> I would like to think of it as like, I aspire <laughs> I aspire to Womble's level of book tempting. I know, it's 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 an incredible thing. And I I have I, I do try and tempt back now and again, but he's normally read it. <laughs> I've had a rubbish week, though. I've reviewed nothing this week. Well, I, I'm like, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm stuck in the doldrums at the moment. I'm read, the book I'm reading is absolutely magnificent, and it's not out till next year, sort of February time. And it's, it is so good because it's gender-flipped Shakespearean wonderfulness. And it is lesbian princes who are awesome. And I, yeah, I am absolutely there for it. But... I don't know whether it's because my commute's shorter. I just cannot sort of read as as much as I, I want to. So it's a, it's a bit annoying. So, Matt, I was going to ask you first. What is your first pick of books for this year? Okay. So I'm going to pick, go with Fantasy first. And um, my first one is going to be The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie that came out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's a tale uh, that is... If you know your Shakespeare, going to sound slightly familiar. So there's a guy called Iolo, and he's the heir to the throne. Him, his dad's died, and he has to go to the Tower of the Raven. Because this is a world with gods, and there's, uh, the god for Iolo's people is the Raven. Right. But the story is he's been usurped by his uncle. He wants to find out was his father murdered or not. So you might be thinking, oh, this is going to be Hamlet, etc. in a fantasy universe. But actually, it's all about Iolo's best friend and companion, Marat, who's a trans man, who's actually being summoned by the god who also lives in the same place, who happens to be a rock. Okay. A, <laughs> so it sort of takes the epic fantasy thing and completely down, downsizes it. So it's all about, it's almost like someone decides to uh, make a role-playing game where each god is taking turns to work out how it can beat the other god and play with the mortal so Really intricate. It's lots of scheming and politicking. And effectively, from, everything is being told from this very droll, very sarcastic, very dry sense of humour, God, who is a rock. I am speechless. And I know you've lent it to me and it's sitting on my shelf. And I'm, I'm re- oh, damn it, I'm going to have to read I, I, it I very soon. I haven't read it, now. but I now really, really <laughs> want to because I loved uh and lecky's science fiction so if it's got that level of politics in it 
and that level of kind of complexity, it will be exactly up my street. So, so this is a prime example of Womble managing to book tempt me because Womble is so good at this that I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hang on yes. a minute while I, I just kind of order that while I'm here. Just, just while we're recording, I will just be buying stuff. So just imagine that going on in the background. <laughs> Yes, I have. I have my phone and the, the hotline to um, whichever website to buy the ebooks on because I've run out of space again. Uh- <laughs> well, I have lent it to you, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I really like it's also, which is one of the things I really do like in fantasy. It's a standalone tale, so you can just read this and it is done. Ooh, this might be one for yeah, book club. Good thought. I'll put it on the list. Yes. One of the other things that that I do is uh, that my friend Kate and I run a fantasy book club that meets in central London every other month. So if you want to find us online, she says, doing a shameless plug, we are fantasybookclub.org. But we are always on the search for good book club books. So this this sounds promising. So I will have to read it now and, and see if it's a good candidate. I'd say if you're purely an epic fantasy reader and like you're just big battles and you want the armies and all this going on, that's all happening off screen, stage left. So I think I've definitely seen a few people who like their big epic fantasies are like, well, this is a bit quiet, not much is going on. And I sort of quite like the fact that it's completely inverted all that. So just sort of think, well, if you're looking for something a bit different in your fantasy, this one's right up, right up your street. Cool. And as a Slytherin courtroom courtroom there so caroline what's your so fantasy this, this was really hard for me as a as a category to to just limit myself to to books it so i tried to put some rules on my picks and okay. i thought it what i want are books that have been published this year and i thought i need to try and limit myself to the books that i f- have been wanting to just push into people's faces and and say you must read this book oh my god it is it is so amazing and probably the the standout one in that category for me this year is is a book called the binding by bridget collins and and it's a really interesting book because it's been if you go and look for it in the shops you will find it shelved with the kind of ordinary boring vanilla fiction not in the genre fiction section and it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of very much in that vibe that a book like Erin Morgenstern's The Night Circus uh, has. And it's got that kind of similar feel. And it's it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Uh, and and I, I say that this is a book that reading it makes me want to fall in love. And it has that kind of excitement and passion and fragility and delicacy of that kind of burgeoning early uh, romance between people. The premise of it is that there is a young man called Emmett Farmer, who, funnily enough, is a farmer, but he's been really, really ill and uh, has has kind of had a a long period recovering from illness. And his family apprentice him to the local bookbinder, a woman called Mm -hmm. Seredith. But bookbinding in this kind of old Victorian world is not bookbinding as you or I would think of it, where you you make pretty end papers and, and, and put pages in. Bookbinding is a magical process where what you're doing is you're taking someone's memories and putting them in a book. And when you do that, they no longer have that memory. And Seredith is is kind of a hedge witch type of a bookbinder. She does this 
very much as a service to people who come to her and they're often traumatized people looking for healing and, 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 and closure and all sorts of things. But there are others that are less scrupulous about it. And there are a lot of people who are using bookbinding as it's kind of almost like magical non-disclosure agreements. So the abused staff who have their memories taken away of the bad things that have happened. There are poor people who sell their memories for money because that's the only way that they can make a living. And of course, if you if you lose too many of your memories, then it sort of starts to get Swiss cheese holes in your brain. And the people that that happened to become these kind of very shallow husks of themselves. So in the backdrop of this story, you have this really interesting um, world which has this gorgeous political hashtag me too kind of vibe around it about the abuse of power where bookbinding becomes this manifestation of power and how power is used and abused by the rich and the powerful. All of that is playing out in the background. But in the foreground, you have this gorgeous story about Emmett Farmer being apprenticed to Serdith the bookbinder. And one day, this kind of really intense, very troubled man, young man arrives because he wants his memories bound. And he's obsessed and really interested with Emmett. And Emmett doesn't know why. And he's, he's kind of a bit puzzled by this, but he's also kind of quite unsettled by this, this strange young man. And this young man, Lucian, comes and has his memories bound and, and then disappears again. And uh, Emmett's life changes a little bit. Serodith uh, dies very suddenly and he is taken on by another bookbinder who is much less scrupulous. And this story starts to evolve. And, and it's probably not too much of a spoiler to say that um, Emmett had had his own memories bound in a book and they suddenly start to come back to him uh, once the book is destroyed. And there is this beautiful, beautiful gay love story in this, which which comes with all of the prejudice around it and the uncertainty of these two young men who are so drawn to each other. And it is beautiful, and it is a book with a roller coaster of shocks. And I was just consuming it in big handfuls of stuffing these words into my face because I really wanted to find out what happens. I wanted a happy ending. I wanted it to all turn out. I wanted because, and it it has one of that no kind of moments in it, and it, it is just a stunningly beautiful thing with beautiful prose. As I said, if you loved Erin Morgenstern's The Night Circus, this is exactly the kind of book for you. It's uh, out in paperback in February, I believe, uh, only out in hardback at the moment. And as I said, you may need to go and find it in the ordinary fiction section of your local bookshop. Uh, But it is absolutely beautiful. It sounds incredible. I shall be pushing this up the pile. From what from your description it is just yes I need I need to read this book as well now so yes yeah absolutely yes and uh, as soon as possible by the sounds of things yeah wow uh, that's that's like a lot of food for thought in there so yes absolutely um, okay and your next picks Matt okay for fantasy uh, the next one is Realm of Ash by Tasha Sully that's came out uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and this is part, essentially the second part of a duology. And the nice thing about these books is you do not have to read them all, so the, uh, in the in the order. So this is the books of Amham, I think it's pronounced, 
um, and specifically about two sisters. So the best story was um, Empire mm-hmm. of Sand that came out last year and uh, won, I think, be- uh, the British Fantasy Award for Tasha's for Best Debut. Uh, it's really, really good. But you do not need to have read that to read Well Mabash because this is about the other sister 15 years later called uh, Ara. And effectively, Ara, when we meet her, is the daughter of a disgraced governor, and that might be tying into the end of the first book. She was married to a military commander. She went to live with him at a fort. Everybody dies but Ara, and effectively, at the tender age of just 21, she has absolutely, in the society of the Amban Empire, absolutely no purpose anymore now. So she is off to become a widow. She cannot remarry. She has no purpose for her family. She's just going to live, live in a widow's hermitage. But Ara and her sister had a different mother. They come from the Amrithi people who are part of the empire, and they have some sort of magical properties and link, links with some of the magical forces that surround this empire. And the emperor's effectively spies realise that Ara has those skills, and she's taken away from um, this remote hermitage to come to the heart of the empire, and Ara really wants to serve the empire because she's got nothing left to do. And this is a book about someone who's effectively been colonised to think of the empire as a good place, discovering that empire is really often a very, very bad thing and having to decide how she's going to take that life forward. And she's a brilliant prickly character. She's been told you have to keep your head down, smile a lot, uh, don't don't talk back. And she's been building this up and building this up. And inside there's all these just punctured razor blades waiting to hit out. And uh, it's a fascinating story as it gets evolves outwards. Sounds good. It is. It's one of the best emotional stories I've read this year, particularly if you've read this, the first book. But actually, I think just on its own, watching her journey from this very bottled up person to actually having to decide what she wants for herself fascinating yeah that does sound really good and i see this is where i'm starting to feel guilty because there is so many good books out there and literally not enough time to read them all in and i've it's like i have empire of sand and it's i'm there and i do intend to read it but i just haven't quite got there yet but yeah so that's that's another one that i will definitely have to read what did you think, Caroline? Does it sound it good to you? It does. It does a lot. And I also have not read Empire of Sand yet, uh, but mostly because we have scheduled it uh-huh. as our March book club book. And, and I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of saving it a little bit for, mm-hmm. for closer to the time. But I have I have heard so much positive buzz and having seen Tasha speak a few times about the book. And having heard her talk, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. And to have uh, a, a story based on and when you're doing kind of secondary world fantasy so much of it is very very dull boring dreadful middle ages european western settings so to have something that tasha's written with that mughal empire kind of flavor and background to it i think is just going to be really, really good yeah I told you I played a long game. <laughs> so, um, so I'd rather be cruelly deprived of my second fantasy recommendation. Leaves <laughs> pause for editing for later. So, um, my second pick. What I wanted to do was uh, actually use this as an opportunity to talk about the writer who is probably my favourite writer, and I'm going to use the very flimsy excuse for this 
that uh, she's had published this year two books, Firstborn and War, which are the final two volumes in uh, her epic fantasy series, The House War. So for those of you who really love a big multi-volume fantasy epic, and I will put my hand up and say I am first in the queue, and are looking for one of those, which is actually all now published. So there is, you can binge read as much as you want. There is no need to wait for the next installment. There is none of the hanging around waiting for Patrick Rothfuss or George R. R. Martin to publish the next volume in the series because mm-hmm. it is now all published. Uh, so I'm going to talk about Michelle West, who is, as I said, uh, one of my favourite writers. She's a Japanese-Canadian writer, and that comes through a lot in uh, her world building, but she's not published in the UK. So her work is something that I've discovered through mm-hmm. uh, foreign imports, and, and I, I first saw her novels probably actually about 20 years ago. So I've had kind of like a my entire adult life relationship with a writer yeah. in much the same way as I had with Robin Hobb, just picking them up as they were published and found these, these brilliant books. So uh, probably the best place to jump on with her work is a series of six books called The Sun Sword. And they they have beautifully deep world building and very strong ensemble casts and this fantastic (coughs) story that subverts a lot of the classic tropes of fantasy. And her, her setting for Sun Sword is um, there are demons that are trying to take over the mortal plane. You know, the god of the hells wants to to come and and rule everything. There is a, a, a ruling family in a desert kingdom that own the magic sword that is the only magic sword that can defeat the lord of the hells. And only someone from that ruling family can wield it because if anyone else tries, they will probably burst into flames. So obviously what the demons do, because they are intensely political, is engineer a coup so that that entire ruling family get killed. Apart from obviously the the, the one remaining son who's a hostage in a neighbouring kingdom up in the north. Now, any other fantasy writer would tell the story about the one remaining heir to the magic sword and his quest to defeat the king of the hells. But Michelle West doesn't do that. What she tells the story of instead is a young woman who got married into that family. And they were not a nice family. She had a very abusive husband, uh, but they are killed around her and her sister wives in the harem are killed around her. And so she's basically a really angry 16-year-old girl who wants revenge for her friends being murdered. And she turns herself into a political weapon. She becomes the very embodiment of feminine perfection for her society, which is a very sexist society. And she uses a hell of a lot of soft power as to how she engineers and picks her way through war between neighbouring nations and turns herself into this political symbol as a way of legitimising that one remaining heir to the royal family from the north and giving him the tools that he needs to be successful. And woven through it is the story of a, a young woman called Jay, who is a mixed race woman who grew up on the streets of uh, a trading city um, 
in the north of the continent. She grew up poor. She grew up an orphan and has collected around herself her, her den, as she calls them, which is a group of fellow street children that she's grown up with and she's the leader of. And her story is very much of a, a young woman and her journey to power. And she's the only seer born in her generation. She can see the future and that gives her access to um, a range of information skills. So she is she is one of the few that understands the peril around the Lord of the Hells and is able to act and draw on resources. But it also makes her a target and it makes her politically desirable. So you've got these two parallel stories of these two young women playing out in this beautiful, vast world with very deep world building. There is layered history. There are fae. There are hidden ruins under the city. There are magical artifacts. There are gods there are half-god children, there are hidden cities, uh, you name it, it's there. There are mysterious time-traveling seers who come bearing magic rings. There is, it, it just has everything. And it has that kind of depth of world building that I love from writers like Robin Hobb. And, and you get this kind of complete story now with Firstborn and War having been published this year. And that second series of House War that kind of brackets Sunsword, it's both prequel and sequel, is the story of Jay, that young mixed race woman who is the seer and how she kind of weaves her way through this kind of wider big narrative. And so I have those upstairs and I am, I'm kind of... I, and I, I, it's, it's those kind of books where, do you know when you get really yes. apprehensive <laughs> about finishing a series... Because you love mm. them and you are only ever going to get to read these books for the first time once. So you've got to kind of like really make it count. So I have that going on. But I also have that kind of creeping trepidation because I can see where story logic is going to take this story. And I kind of don't want to go there, even though I know that that is going to be absolutely the right ending for the characters and absolutely the perfect ending but I don't want to go there, but I really want to read the books. And and I've had this lifelong relationship with the books that means that reading them is kind of like hanging out with my friends a bit. And it's kind of where I go when, in, when times are difficult and when the world is on fire. These are the books that I kind of want to reach yeah. for. So I've been kind of rationing the later releases out a little bit. Uh, but now is definitely the time when I kind of need to push through to the end and, and, and kind of go through with that. So it's 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 a set of books that if you are looking for that big multi-volume fantasy epic with big ensemble cast and great world building and epic earth-shattering battles and ancient power and mysterious characters, this is definitely for you. You mentioned this to me last time I caught up with them, and one of their I think the first one out in my pile next year, and I agree. It's that kind of at the moment. It's very much as soon as I get past next week. I'm just going to have a nice long couple of weeks just getting into some nice meaty long books and turning the world off. And I should say, sorry, the first book in that series is uh, The Broken Crown for Sunsword. So start there. They've recently been reissued in paperback, but you will get them in port only. But there are also audiobooks and ebooks available. That's good to know. Fantastic. So that, that sounds really good i think that's that's fair because um this is i've been doing a lot of thinking this week because obviously we're in sort of we've just had an election it's it's been horrendous i guess for a lot of people and it's going to get worse and i i think we need to be able to find solace wherever we can and you know 
finding books that offer us that solace is great. And I'm sort of very much about sort of hope punk at the moment and finding books that are, you know, have a positive message because we are living in the dystopia. We need we need something that is pure and happy that we can aspire to again. <laughs> I can't read Grimdark. And I, I just, and I, I know it's, it's the thing, but for, for all those sorts of reasons, you know, I, I, a lot of my reading is escape and wanting to, to hear about alternative possibilities and optimism. So I don't want to be confronted with the grinding mud and violence and people being horrible to each other. Though occasionally it is done very well, and there are some writers that do it very well, but so often it's just a very exploitative horrible set of fiction and I just don't want that you know I want the good guys to win and I want there to be true love and I want optimism and I want hope and I want people to get their just desserts and their comeuppances and and I'm not ashamed of that no I think it's I think it's important uh especially at the moment that we have got that sort of thing that we can push for sorry sorry Matt go on Oh, I, I would. I was sort of thinking Grimdark. I, I quite like it when it's done well. It's very easy, I think, for Grimdark to fall into purely gratuitous violence, and the worst offenders can make quite a lot of sexual abuse. Just becomes a plot device, and then I think you're not doing great Grimdark as the way it should be done. You're just doing very nasty, uh, very male-focused fantasy. Good Grimdark, um, I think, is a na- is sort of take on political fantasy, and I think it's now gone past a stage. So now, actually, I think the fact Grimdark that is coming out is a lot more political. Um, things like Anna Smith Sparks books, they're sort of moving into a slightly different direction, and it's been quite interesting this year. I love. Okay. I absolutely love Anna Smith Sparks books i mean that, that that she is one of the writers that, that i would make an exception for and you know because me too <laughs> i had a really fascinating conversation with anna about a year ago as, as you do in a bar uh about uh and about she was talking about how form is really underrated in genre fiction and she's really interested because she's got quite a a an academic literary background in in form mm-hmm. And, and it got me thinking about her work as classical tragedy and, and about how that, that those themes sort of play through. And, and at some point, I will try and turn that into some intelligent sounding blog post. But but I think her work absolutely is, is good and it doesn't fall into that gratuitous violence, although she does have a lot of violence and a very high body count. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel like it's violent for the sake of it. It's not violence for the purpose of titillation. It, it, it serves purpose in the way that um, Joe Abercrombie, I think, does does it very well. I think Sandan Glockter is, um, as a character, is a work of utter, utter genius and is so multi-layered. And it's that, that layering and complexity that, that separates the good stuff out. But even then, it, it is not necessarily a, a type of writing that I'm always going to seek out. No, I think it's one of those ones. I was going to say, it's, yeah, it is definitely one that you've got to be in the mood for. But going back to um, Anna, Anna Smith Spark, uh, I have an episode uh, where I, I recorded an episode with her recently, and we talked about sort of similar things about sort of like 
sort of like classical the idea of tragedy and the shape of that because that was something I'd, I'd noticed that that her writing feels very sort of like epic and poetic and it's kind of it's almost in that epic mode rather than in um you know something more earth-based if if you get what I mean yes because uh, it, it's her writing is unique it, it's sort of it's really like it's like immersive fiction you are put into it and it's all about sound and feeling and color and sensation um but i think i also just like the fact that it actually says violence isn't very good you really probably need to think about the consequences of it and i think when i look for grimdark i like something a bit like joe abercrombie where it actually is pointing a very big pointed finger and saying this kind of stuff is actually going on and it's really really bad <laughs> And occasionally, I think fantasy can be is often small c conservative and loves its big battles, oh. loves its hereditary monarchy, and sometimes I like someone to actually poke a quick finger at it. Totally, totally. I mean, so so much of generic fantasy is just basically Downton Abbey with magic, and it's it's all about reinforcing those class based structures. There's a lot of hereditary monarchy with no checks and balances there's a a lot of rosy-cheeked cooks who are very happy with their lots uh, and and it, it it kind of lacks any sense of what the reality of those stratified societies would be like and the impacts of power and the use and abuse of power and I get quite cross about that and I, I will spare you my rant about that which I've done far too often but but yeah, I mean it's it, it's just dull to read Especially as well. As I, I, I just don't I see want that. Twenty twenty could have a lot of wheel of time. People no, and I, people talking about it, which really worries me. <laughs> oh oh yeah yeah we, we won't we won't go there. We'll we'll avoid we will avoid because uh, <laughs> I I I mean I sort of got I only really got into fantasy and science fiction I guess fairly late on as a, as a human um in <laughs> sort of I guess properly properly in the last sort of like 10 years and I don't have the background in re- having read you know the classics of the genre I mean I've read Lord of the Rings but um it's it's like there's a lot there's a lot of gaps in my sort of like fantasy history knowledge and in my you know classic sci-fi and I don't and I honestly think I probably sort of like I mean Matt we've talked about it before that um we bounce off a lot of the sort of like classic stuff because it doesn't speak to us and I guess where what I'm finding interesting is the people who are writing now who are sort of questioning the status quo and are doing things that are different um, I wonder how much of yeah. it is a reaction to the lean times of the 1990s, because that was a bad decade for fantasy writing. There was kind of it was kind of coming out of the the kind of like the 1980s, David Eddings and uh, Terry Brooks kind of style of very predictable Lord of the Rings style rip off stuff. And there, there was just kind of then a lot of really bad fantasy fiction in the 90s. And the only kind of real highlights through it were people like Robin Hobb and Tad Williams, who people seem to have 
seems to have really sadly kind of slipped a little bit into obscurity until fairly recently. But Tap Williams was doing some amazing stuff with Memory, Sorrow and Thorn and, and wrote some beautiful books and stuff like Shadow March, which is kind of a bit like a less rapey Game of Thrones. And it's some really good writing with really good storytelling and very innovative um innovative work but apart from you know a couple of names like that there was just a lot of really derivative secondary world stuff of that kind of Robert Jordan kind of ilk and it was just a bad decade and I I drifted out of reading genre fiction just because the quality of what was out there at the time just felt like it wasn't really there with a, with a couple of exceptions but it's in contrast now it's just so different my to be red pile is famously towering it's 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 a bookcase that is triple stacked with many piles next to it and lots of piles on top and I'm overwhelmed with choice at the moment which feels like a great place to be and a lot better from where I was in the 90s where you were reading things because that's what there was and there wasn't anything else yeah I'd agree because I I think when I hear people say oh to understand fantasy you need to go back to the classics I'm like no you do not need to go to Lord of the Rings you could watch the films it'll be a lot more entertaining um but it's it's a it's sort of they are good at their time there are some I quite find it fascinating how the big writers of the 90s are all men and often Robin Hobb is there and you still wonder exactly how many people realize it's a woman <laughs> by the name there is that and um, but it's fascinating to see people who are falling through the cracks that's something i really like that's something i'm thinking about for next year on the blog a few more uh, famous uh women writers because you think terry pratchett's managed to get 35 books for discworld it's really hard to think of a woman who's been allowed to write that many books no and i'm, I'm kind of trying to think now and the name that popped into my head for the other the other person that I was clinging on to in the 90s is Catherine Kerr, who was incredibly prolific, but but certainly lost a US publishing deal because her sales weren't what she or what she or they wanted. But uh, Harper Voyager was sticking by her in the UK and, and keeping on publishing. So but apart from someone like Catherine Kerr, who from the name was very obviously a woman writer, it's hard to think of them. No, and actually, Kathy has one of the writers. I'm probably I'm thinking of doing some reweeds for next year's blog. Uh, I want to have a look at practice because that was something I was trying to do uh, earlier this year. But I want to do in parallel some women who've done long long series too. Um, because mm-hmm. no one's done anything like Pratchett, I think I'm going to have to do a, sev- a few writers at the same time, which I think will be good because I, I tend not to do the old stuff very often. So I'll be fascinated to see what works and what doesn't. But it's just amazing how when you go back to early Discworld, it's really shockingly poor. <laughs> and you'd wonder <laughs> um, if these days you'd had the, the Colour of Magic and like Fantastic, how long it would have been before that, that series would have ended before you got to the good stuff. Yeah, because I mean, that Because it really takes until, well, I was going to say, it really takes until Mort for him to find yeah. his feet. I, I was about to say the same thing. And and I'm not that keen on Mort. I prefer, um, I think Weird Sisters is my first favourite one. So it's, it's uh, but that's also the first book I read of his. So that's, that's probably clouding my judgment slightly. But yeah, going back and rereading The Colour of Magic and The Light Fantastic, and it was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I mean, I loved Terry Pratchett. He's he was he's been he he was such an important figure in in my reading as as a teenager, because I read as you know when they when they came out, I would get them, and it, it was you know he was vitally important to me. And just going back and revisiting, and you're like, oh oh crikey, yeah, and you know it's it it, it it's one of those fascinating and interesting things. But then, like, we know that the market has changed completely and it's so much harder for, you know, good writers to, who are, who are, you know, phenomenal and yet they're not getting the recognition that, you know, I think that they deserve. And it's, well, how do you get the word out? It's that there is also that. And that's, you know, part of the reason we're doing this. And the market turns over mm-hmm. so quickly now as well, and things are on the shelves and then gone so quickly. So I'm, I'm going to just blame all of that on the demise of Borders as a bookshop. So those, the kind of the loss of those big bookshop chains, because that's where backlist was. That's where you would go, and you would, if book five in a series was published, you'd be able to not just pick that up and just go, that sounds interesting, but you find books one to four as well. So they were supporting a lot of those big multi-volume epics and getting that kind of longer term sales and those returning re- returning customers and you would get the ability. And the best, the thing I love best about a bookshop is going in and discovering something new that you didn't know about and that kind of being able to have the time to browse the shelves and pick something up and read the back of it and read the first couple of pages and go, that sounds amazing and and something that I might not have stumbled across in a way that online retailers you just don't get that that kind of same experience but without those kind of bricks and mortar bookshops it 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 feels much harder to do that and they seem to be wanting to churn their stock a lot faster to Mm -hmm. to kind of maximize the value of the the shelf space that they've got so it, it feels like it's going to be much much harder to for a writer to, to to kind of break through, unless they get that strong initial impact, it's it's no. it, we may not hear about them and, and without people like Womble diligently drawing <laughs> yeah, them to our attention. The mid list is, is sort of gone, and that was sort of the idea that you'd have your big, big bestsellers, but definitely there's quite a lot. You, there'd be books you buy every week, and there's people in there that you can plug and you can develop as a writer. And I think one thing, and this is where I also have to point the finger at reviewers, we can be a little bit fascinated by the new. So we love to go for the new debuts, we love to go for the new series, the brand new ideas. And often you can have a writer, I don't, it, we wouldn't have anyone else say the first thing you do is the best thing you'll ever, ever do. You learn from your mistakes and you grow as a series. And sometimes I find it fascinating when I watch an author who did a really good first debut novel, or or certainly a good first debut novel, but you then sort of see them evolve as their career progresses. And we tend to forget about that when we go to the next big thing. And that's one thing I am conscious of, to keep an eye out for people who've actually got to their second second series or their their second book. Because in fantasy, if you've done your first trilogy... It's three years before you get to do your next big thing. Mm-hmm. And it's always fascinating to see how they've developed that. Like R.J. Barker's Bone Ships is very different to The Wounded Kingdom. And you can see the writing has developed a bit. Cool. And um, I'm just, I'm slightly conscious now that time is ticking on. And <laughs> we've been nattering for like 40 minutes and we haven't got to sci-fi yet. So um, I, I agree completely with what you're saying. And 
it, it's one of those things that I, I find that if I adopt an author and I, I like their work, I will seek out the rest of it and I will keep going back to them. Um, and that's you know one of the reasons why I champion Emma Newman. It's one of the reasons why I champion Laura Lamb and because I think they are phenomenal writers and I, I still feel like they're completely underrated uh, by the majority and they need to be read more. <laughs> so sci-fi picks um matt if you start us off with your first sci-fi pick yes i have a couple for you so uh, the first is to be taught if fortunate by becky chambers oh so that's the novella yes it's a standalone novella and it's set in a future where in the 22nd century space travel and uh, discovery has been crowdsourced so a small team of astronauts have been sent on a deep space mission to go and look at three different planets that will take them decades, possibly centuries, to go round, investigate, and eventually come back home. And each planet, they go to sleep, travel through space, and the, uh, their bodies are modified to suit a high-gravity world, a low-gravity world, a world that has no sunlight, so that their skin glitters. So each one is a trip itself to a completely different world. And also at the same time, this amazing crowd-roaded uh, space organization back on planet Earth suddenly stops sending them messages. They are cut off from everything. And it's a lovely sort of tale about, okay, being progressive is great, but sometimes things go mm -hmm. wrong, which I think is very suitable for this time and place. So what do you do about it? Do you carry on? Do you go home? Do you give up? Uh, do you get stuck? It's a very powerful, very short tale, but it really, I think, gives you a lovely boost that what people can do when they put their minds to it. Okay, so that does... Well, I mean, I'm a huge Becky Chambers fan anyway, so um, I do have it, and it, yeah, it's been languishing on the to-read pile. But yes, okay, that's... that. You're doing it again, Matt. You're you're tempting. <laughs> um, so, uh, Caroline, what's your sci-fi pick? So, I'm going to go with Arkady Martin's A Memory Called Empire, uh, which is post-colonial space opera, and and obviously mm -hmm. post-colonial space opera is is a thing of awesomeness anyway. Uh, but it's it's the kind of book that is particularly up my street because the main character is a diplomat from uh, a remote space station into a big uh, galactic empire, and she is, is is sent to the empire because her predecessor has gone missing. And so there's a sort of a bit of a murder mystery as well as it starts and also some impending big kind of it, it, whatever geopolitics is at the, at the galactic scale. But she is also trying to stop her tiny little mining based space station being taken over and absorbed by the big giant galactic empire. And, and it's, it, it's a great book because it's not an evil galactic empire, which would be so easy to do. And her her diplomat character, Mahit Desmer, is 
is selected for for her role as as ambassador in part because of her fascination with that empire and its and its culture. So this is a book with a lot of poetry in it, an awful lot of poetry. There's a lot of satirical poetry. There's a lot of symbolic poetry. There are poetry competitions where young civil servants compete with the cleverness of their poetry, and there is a kind of like a poem of the month that is fated, and. Mahit comes into that culture with this great deep love of it and a desire to be part of it. But she feels quite torn because she wants to protect where she's from. And in immersing herself in this culture, she's kind of becomes very aware of her separateness from it for all that she wants to be part of it. So it's got all of this wonderful stuff about cultural colonialism, but a lot of themes in it around identity because she carries this device in the base of her spine that that kind of gives her the the memories of her predecessor, some of those memories and skills. So it's this sort of blending of identity. What's her? What was her ambassador predecessor? And she's kind of trying to pick her way through this big political crisis where the emperor of the the big galactic empire is aging. There are lots of people jockeying for position as to who's going to succeed him on his death. And the the kind of the, the big invasion plots become how they are playing that out. And she is trying to protect and save her little station through this, whilst also kind of averting uh, wider alien invasion. So it's just this really gorgeous book that is, is sort of part of this trend of post-colonial space opera. So it's very like an Anne Leckie. It's very like Yoon Ha Lee. So if you love those writers, okay. then, then this is definitely something. Yeah, I've read this and it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's also got the best diplomatic PA attaché ever. <laughs> Oh, Three Seagrass. She is wonderful. She is absolutely wonderful. And the way she threads a path through working for Mahit whilst also uh, representing the empire and being a loyal uh, empire civil servant, she is just wonderful. Okay. So um, that's actually sitting on the shelf and I can see it from here. So, oh, yeah, more, more, more to be read, more to be read. (laughs) So your second picks. Okay, so this one is another standalone and quite a short novel. This is and uh, this is how you lose time war by Max Gladstone and Amal El Motar, and it's absolutely fantastic. So um, you have a universe, multiverse wide, across the space and time, empire two empires are fighting each other out for for overall rule. Sounds like Daleks versus Time Lords. It's not. Um, but in this uh, mighty battle, we have two t- effectively time agents who go to different planets and different times and try to beat the other side by manipulating events in their favour. So one is called Red, one is called Blue. And they, uh, they're they aware of each other. They're the best in their game. So one of them sends a little taunting note saying, ha ha, you lose. I, I, sort, I sort you out. And... They keep going across time, dropping little insulting notes to each other. And over time, these two agents start to talk to one another and they discover they've actually got an awful lot in in common with each other. So it's almost like you are online and there's someone that keeps getting into your way and you start speaking to them and you discover there's one person, despite all the people on your side, who actually gets you 
and it's almost like we're talking effectively becomes love letters across space and time being dropped to someone um that they finally meet someone who actually gets them properly it's absolutely wonderful and weird at the same time okay. I am really looking forward to reading this book. So one of the book clubs that I go to has scheduled it for next year and I've heard nothing but praise for it as a book and I have it on my pile upstairs uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. Yeah, I I have it too uh, in the bedroom. So, you know, it's it's actually closer to um, for me. So it's it's fairly close to the top of the pile. But, um, oh, my word, yes, um, that does sound amazing and fabulous and all of those things and again it's like you only ever hear amazing things about it so yeah yep 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 it's a very short read but i would say particularly in times where you feel like the world's on fire this would be a nice read for you to just soak yourself in for a couple of hours and you'll come out feeling much better at the end of it okay that does sound good <laughs> right um so Caroline. Caroline, do you have a second pick? I do. So I'm going to break my publish this year rule for, for my second science fiction pick. And I think it's partly because I've read a lot more fantasy this year than I have science fiction. But also because I really want to this is a book that I really think deserves wider attention. And my my kind of loose connection is I've met the uh, well, my excuse for plugging it here is that I met the writer when I was at Worldcon in Dublin, and it was one of the highlights of my Worldcon was seeing and, and hearing her speak. Um, and it was, they say, never meet your heroes, but I actually love the book more now having uh, met her and heard her talk. So it's a novel called Spare and Found Parts by an Irish writer called Sarah Maria Griffin. And it's set in a post-apocalyptic Dublin uh, although it's it's not avowed in the book as Dublin, but if you know Ireland in any way, it's set in a place called Blackwater City, which is the English language translation of Dublin. There are places in it like the Phoenix Park. And if you know the, the geography of Dublin, you'll be able to kind of map the events of the book mm-hmm. quite heavily onto it. And it's the, it's the story of a, a young girl called Nell Crane, whose father makes uh, biomechanical parts for people because there's been some kind of unspecified environmental uh, disaster. So it's definitely a post-climate change Dublin because the temperature is a lot warmer and it's, it's almost tropical in parts. And the people are damaged in some way. So a lot of them have missing limbs or, or need support. And Nell herself has a mechanical heart. And... The young people in the society have to make a contribution of some sort to become uh, fully functioning adults. That's either they have to invent something new or they have to uh, marry and have children or they have or or if none of those happen, then they become kind of co-opted into one of the great works in the city. And one of those is a, uh, a big statue that's being built in the centre of Dublin that was designed actually by Cora's mother. Uh, sorry, Nell's mother, Cora, who uh, sadly died uh, many years before. And it's this giant statue of Kathleen Nihulihorn. 
And so it's, it's kind of a Frankenstein story because what Nell wants her contribution to be as, as the deadline is approaching for her to, to produce some, some original work. And she, she creates an artificial boy. And this is a society that is very skeptical of technology. It's very enclosed. Uh, the computers are the great evil and, and they, are, they are suppressed and illicit items. And what she's partly trying to do in creating uh, an artificial consciousness in a robot body is she's trying to rehabilitate technology in this society. And, and, but it's also kind of slightly Tin Man because, you know, Nell's mechanical heart becomes this kind of emblem as well of her distancing from society. She's a bit of an outsider. She doesn't feel like she fits in. And her father is trying to press her into uh, a marriage that she doesn't want with the son of the local undertaker. He's kind of quite slimy and quite creepy. But Nell is is very obviously just not interested in that mm-hmm. and, and finds his his approach is really uncomfortable and and there's a, a again in a kind of hashtag me too kind of world there is a little bit about consent and and boundaries and and how that plays out and it works for me though not just as a as a piece of post apocalyptic fiction about what a world might be like but it also works as a piece of Irish literature and my academic background is in Irish history, culture, politics, and it it is very obviously an Irish novel uh, for its treatment of women in particularly. And and it was something that I I saw the writer talk about a lot. And and her her next book is is actually about the Magdalene Laundries Mm -hmm. and is a, a kind of a YA ghost story about Magdalene Laundries, which I have on the pile and need to read soon. But as a, as, as a story about the place of women in Irish society who are, who are simultaneously venerated, but also marginalised and exploited, you know, never more so than in the great work that, that her mother, this statue of Kathleen Hulahorn, who is the, the kind of the female embodiment of Irishness. And, and a lot of the Irish literary revival theatre was about this figure. You know, there are lots of plays about the old woman who is also a beautiful young woman who comes in to the farm and talks about her four green fields. So the four provinces of Ireland having been stolen away by the evil landlord, the British, and the young men are become motivated to go and fight for her and get her four green fields back for her. So she's this emblem of, of nationhood. So this giant towering statue being built over the city is a great work done by Nell's mother, Cora, but Cora has been kind of obscured from a lot of the narrative. And there's a lot about women's places, uh, meaning to to have children. And Nell struggling with her her gender identity and her sexuality, because there is a, a, a very subtle queer love story running through it as well. So it's it's a wonderful, wonderful book that really needs a lot more attention. And the writer is this passionate, angry Irish feminist that I just adore. I've read this and it's also really, really good. And I've read the second novel, All the Worlds for Smoke, which is a fantasy and it's a completely different world. And she's she's definitely a writer I think everyone should be watching because I think she's getting better and she's going along now. So... Brilliant. Thank you very much for your recommendations for today. Um, they, as I, as I've like said repeatedly, uh, my to to be read pile is is now teetering on the verge of a landslide, and um, may possibly kill me in the new year. 
but I wanted to thank you both for like giving up your your time to come and chat to me about what you think has been really good this year and um before you go just sort of if there's anything else that you want to give a shout out to Yes, if I can, because uh, this would have been my bubbling under third pick on fantasy. And this is the 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 joy of a perfect book recommendation from a friend, which is which is 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 always just wonderful. And again, it kind of failed my published this year test, but I have absolutely adored reading it. And it's uh, To Kill a Kingdom by Alexandra Christo, which is a, a feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid. And The Little Mermaid is always a Hans Christian Andersen story that I find really problematic mm-hmm. for in so many, so, so many ways. But yeah. this, this corrects every single problem that I have with it. But it, it's gorgeous. It's hugely romantic. It has charming pirate princes it has feral mermaids who rip the hearts out of princes uh because that's what they do and it's it's a it's a very um empowered female characters within it who are not rescued by or dependent on the charming pirate princes but learn and reflect and and change and and the charming pirate prince is just gorgeous i mean if you love romance and if you love the two characters that you really, really, really want to get together to be sat on a mountaintop at night, looking out at the stars, having just gorgeous little beautiful romantic moments. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. Okay. And Matt? I'm going to uh, add in the... No, getting the words out. It is uh, The Future of Another Timeline by Annalee Newitz, which is out now. Um, this is about men's rights activists trying to change the timelines to take away all women's rights, uh, including the right to abortion. And a group of time-travelling feminists have gone back in time to reset time in their own alternate world. It sounds like it could be very funny. It isn't. It's very, very serious. It's uh, really well thought out. And also, just as I'm of the right age, has an awful lot of 90s nostalgia in it as well. Oh, uh, I, I find it very suitable for the times we. But the, but the 90s was only like about five years ago. Three minutes ago, yes. surely, yes, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah, I... Yeah, I, I mean, mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can't be nostalgic for something all that was like last week. I know. It, it's slightly scary how time just speeds up. <laughs> but... Uh, what changes? Oh, my word. Yeah. So... Thank you both very, very much again for your time today and for giving me some brilliant uh, sort of, oh, come on, brain. Give me some brilliant recommendations and stuff I already have, so I'm feeling quite smug, but also stuff that I need to seek out. Uh, And thank you very much. (laughs) 